This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. Many years ago, one of the really fun adventures I had, I'd been working in London, I'd quit my job, I had six weeks off before I started my new next job, and I was like, okay, so I'm off to have some adventures. And what I did is I headed to Wales, and I spent a week learning to rock climb in the Brecon Beacons. And it really was a great adventure. I mean, it confirmed a number of things. The first is that I have a physique ideally unsuited to rock climbing. I mean, I am tall and thin and weak. (laughs) And rock climbing, kind of, you want to be the opposite of that. Um, But one of the really interesting things for me learning about rock climbing was it was less about where you placed your hands and it was more about where you placed your feet with good feet placement magic can happen it's the the springboard for for what happens next and when i was thinking about how to best introduce my next guest dave snowden i thought this might be an interesting story to talk about not least well kind of uh, superficially because dave is based in wales but dave is also the cso of cognitive edge he's the creator of the sense making framework but he's also the founder and director of the Kinevan center And the Kinevan Center is based around a framework that helps us understand the world. And when I looked up, went to try and look up the meaning of the word Kinevan, because it's a a Welsh word, nobody's quite got a definition for it. I've read that it can mean um, the place of your multiple belongings. I've also heard it could mean the place to stand. And I just thought, oh, right, a place to stand, that's perfect, because that's part of what rock climbing is about. But it's also in a much broader and more interesting way what the Kinevan model is about as well. So we really do have one of the the great thinkers and creators around the uh, world of complexity. His 2007 article for HBR won assorted awards. It's called A Leader's Framework for Decision Making. Uh, He co-wrote it with Mary Boone and really is a seminal piece in terms of how we think about organizations, how we think about leadership, how we think about showing up and understanding the life that we live. So I'm very excited to talk to Dave. Dave, welcome. Pleasure to be with you. And um, I'm, some people want to come across the Kinevan framework. I'm wondering if you could even just kind of set out the basics of that for us. Yeah, it's, it's relatively simple. I mean, you can go into more depth, but at its basic, it's a five-domain framework. It basically argues you need to know what type of system you're in before you start to make decisions. It, it mm-hmm. came out of a whole body of frustration I had with management fads sweeping through the industry every few years, trying to abandon everything which had gone before. The reality is most things work very well, but then we take them to excess and we go beyond their boundary conditions and they start to fail. So Kinevin was partly designed to handle that. So it basically divides into three fundamental systems, ordered systems, complex systems, and chaotic systems. So ordered systems have a very high level of constraints. So they've got predictability, they've got cause and effect relationships, and you can engineer solutions. And they really divide into two, ones where the relationship between cause and effect is clear and where it's complicated. Right. If it's clear, then it's like in the UK. We drive on the left. Everybody knows that. Everybody does it. It's fairly obvious. Yeah. Yeah. 
If it's complicated, then you need an expert to analyze it, or you need to do some sort of research, but there is a solution to be found. So that's clear and complicated for the first two domains. Right. You then get chaos. So chaos in Kinevin is a state of no meaningful constraint. Everything appears to be random. And it won't exist for long in nature. And if you if you create it, you can create some quite powerful stuff with it, wisdom of crowds and things like that. Yeah. But it's a catastrophic event if it happens accidentally. And then you've got complexity, which is effectively a many connected system. Everything is entangled. Alicia Gerardo uses a lovely metaphor here. She said a complex system is like bramble bushes in a wood. <laughs> yeah, right. Everything is twisted and connected with everything else. Beautiful. So you have no relationship between, or no meaningful relationship between cause and effect. And you can only understand the system by experimenting with it. Um, so we do parallel safe to fail experiments. So that's clear, complicated, complex, and chaotic. Right. And then the final domain is a mix, is if you want to see where it's confused. So it's a state of not knowing which of the other four domains you're in. And that's a bad place to be, but it's not <laughs> like organization as well. Right. One of the senses I've got, Dave, is uh, in organizational life in particular, everybody wishes that things were complicated, but actually, and, and it tries to apply solutions that will drive that kind of, you know, best practices and then kind of striving for expertise. But in fact, for much of what's happening in organizational life, it's complexity. I'm, I'm wondering how you, first of all, help people manage to shift that quite fundamental way of seeing the world. I think boundaries are important for humans. The, the thing Kinevin did was to create boundaries between order and complexity. Mm. And once human beings realize there's a boundary, they're prepared to behave differently on the other side. So that psychologically is quite important. But also for the past three or four decades, we've been working off an engineering metaphor of society. Right. Um, with things like business process re-engineering and also things like learning organization on the soft side. So the assumption has been is you can set a future target. You can say what you want to be, which is what engineers want, and then you execute. Yeah? Right. The problem is that when you deal with human beings, it doesn't work that way. Um, and you get catastrophic failures. You get so many, everything is connected with everything else. So actually you can't predict what will happen. Right. So what we do is to switch people, and there's probably three things we do. One is we help them to map what's called a dispositional state. So complex systems aren't causal, they're dispositional. You can make statements about what's plausible and what isn't plausible, but you right. can't make predictions. So we produce what are called fitness landscapes for, say, culture or attitude or belief or opinion which show commonalities and differences and show outliers. So that is hugely helpful for an executive because it identifies where they are. Right. And the essence of complexity is you start with where you are and decide where you'll go next mm -hmm. rather than trying to achieve goals, which are unachievable anyway. So we, we right. say you start journeys with a sense of direction. 
That's one thing we do. Second thing and, we do. And Dave, just to jump in, because I, I, one of the things that I was reading prior to this, in terms of a metaphor you used to explain uh, specific versus di- uh, directional, was a description of the weather. You know, you can look out the window and go, hey, it's looking kind of cloudy and rainy, which is kind of an understanding of where you're standing roughly without having the specificity of it's 32 degrees and it's 26% humidity or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's not my metaphor, but it's quite a good one. I think ultimately, it is it's an important distinction it's worth making here. So human systems have intentionality, intention, and multiple identities. Hmm. Whereas the weather ultimately is deterministic. It's called deterministic chaos. Okay. So if I build a big enough computer and throw enough MIPS at it, I can probably end up modeling quite accurately. And if you look what the Met Office do, they do quite well known. Yeah. Human systems add layers of uncertainty on top of that, so they can't be truly modelled, and, right. and that's important to understand. The only way you engage with a complex system, well, you only understand it by engagement, which is why we do parallel safe-to-fair experiments around any coherent idea of what might work, rather uh-huh. than using one single approach. Right. Say more about what a safe-to-fail experiment is. Well, I mean, all executives have faced this. I mean, you end up, you've got, a, you've got what we call an intractable problem or a wicked problem, if you want to go with the popular words. And you've got about eight or nine people, all of whom you reasonably respect, all of whom have different hypotheses about what would actually work or not work. Mm-hmm. And you've got to resolve it. And you can't resolve it on evidence base within the time frame for decisions. And that's a basic definition of a complex system. Right. So if you understand this, what you do is you give each of those people a small amount of funding to run a very short cycle experiment. And there are various rules around this. One is, if it doesn't work, you have to be able to recover. Right. And if you can't have a recovery plan, you don't do the experiment. Right. So if I run eight safe to fail experiments over three, three, three months, the dispositional state changes, so the right solution starts to become obvious. Yeah? And that's kind of like the difference. You, you understand by engagement. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite interesting that what we're doing on COVID-19 pandemic at the moment with organizations is communication by engagement, because if you engage people in a feedback loop, right. they don't feel they're helpless victims. They get some agency, and that's, that's important in a complex system. Dave, one of the one of the things that you've been talking about recently in your writing is the power of narrative, um, and the power of narrative as um, the kind of the scaffold of meaning. Is that connected to um, safe to fail experiments, or is that a different path? It's it's a mixture. So one of the big things we've developed is narrative mapping. Mm-hmm. So we let people be ethnographers to their own condition, which means we've got a quantitative technique in what is normally a qualitative domain. Right. This is your SenseMaker framework. Yeah, and SenseMaker software, and that allows us to draw these dispositional maps. What you can then do is you can look at the map, which is like a contour map. Now, if you think about it, go back to your hill metaphor. Yeah. Yes. You're on Penafan in um, in the Bracken Beacons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you kind of like want to make the full ridge walk right over towards the Black Mountains, but you've got intermediate steps you have to do first before you can see the path. Right. And that in complexity is called an adjacent possible. Mm-hmm. So you say, hang on a minute, I'll go down this slope and I'll get to that summit, then I'll navigate again. Yeah, that's that's an adjacent space. Yes. 
And you might get there and you can see the weather's turning bad to the east and it's not to the west, so you might divert, yeah? Right. Uh, if you're doing a series of progressive stages, you can adjust what you actually do. Um, and we and the way we do that is more stories like this, fewer stories like that, which can engage everybody. So if you go to people, say, in a safety project and say we have to be more safety-focused or customer-focused or whatever it is, they yep. all say, but we are. <laughs> yeah, and kind of roll actually, their eyes because, like, you've told us that before. Yeah, been here before. If you give them a, a body of stories collected from customers or collected from people about safety and say on a map, you say, guys, we need more of these, fewer of these, mm -hmm. everybody can get it and everybody can engage. And that, that's that's the, called the vector theory of change. You're, you're actually identifying where you can move next, and then you're measuring the speed, energy, intensity, and direction of travel. What that perhaps brings up for people listening in is thinking, well, Dave, anecdotal stories sound interesting, or anecdotes sound interesting in that collective. The collection of anecdotes tells us something about a direction. But big data is the opposite of that. Big data is is zeros and ones and math and and driving that. And everyone is talking about big data. Not a whole lot of people are talking about collecting anecdotes. How, how do you counter that kind of hunger for the big data thing that's happening right now? I think you you've got three things. You've got big data, thick data, and rich data. Mm. Yeah. So big data is the noughts and the ones, and you can get huge value out of that, provided you don't start to fool yourself to think that correlation is causation, and some of them do. Yeah. Yes. Um, so there's a bunch of epidemiologists mo at the moment who are screaming blue murder at the big data guys because they don't understand the basis of disease vectors. They think they can right. do it all with maths and algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. But right, you're not overconfident. Big data is valuable. Yeah. Yes. You then get thick data, which is ethnography. And that's where mm -hmm. an ethnographer studies stuff. And they can't cope with anecdotal data because it's too ambiguous. So they have to ask people to tell stories within a structured template. Got it. And that's very rich in meaning, but it's very limited in volume and takes a long time. Got it. What we did, and this was originally on DARPA projects and counterterrorism, was we made people ethnographers to their own condition. So effectively, that's rich data. So we get very large volumes of quantitative data, and the anecdotes support the quant. Mm -hmm. So the people interpret their own anecdotal data into a quantitative framework. That was the brilliant insight we had. Right. So I can move to real-time capture, and then I've actually got something which sits between big data and thick data and has greater authenticity because power transfers to the interpreter. And if you have narrative interpreted by an AI bot or by an expert, it's subject, the AI bot is subject to training data set bias. Mm -hmm. and the ethnographer is subject to cultural bias. Here, there's no bias because the person makes their own interpretation. You know, in a weird way, it makes me think of emotional intelligence. I mean, if emotional intelligence is being able to see your own stories and start interpreting it and, and choosing to act or not act based on what you're seeing in terms of your own stories, this feels like a way of taking individual emotional intelligence, but taking it up to create a kind of a collective understanding of, yeah, of what might be happening. I, I qualify that a little bit. I get worried about mm -hmm. EQ because it's, it's even more deficient than IQ in terms of it <laughs> specific, all right? Right, yeah. But I think, I think the other big thing, and this is a critical thing to understand about complexity, is that what matters is how things connect, not what they are. Right. 
right? Now, that actually makes interventions a lot easier and more ethical because we've had 20 years with, you know, pseudosciences like Myers-Briggs, yeah? Yeah. With people trying to put people in boxes and say, I need more of these and fewer of those. Mm -hmm. The reality is, if you change how people interact, you can change organizations very quickly. And you're not trying to manipulate individual psychology. Right. And so that's now backed up by cognitive neuroscience, by complexity theory. Connections matter more than things. Can you can you uh, give me an example of what that what that means? At an or- I'm particularly interested in organisations. Yeah. So when you say trying not to change people but trying to change the, the nature of the interactions, what does that look like? Well, let's give an example. One of the things we yeah. do on, um, say, trying to articulate user needs within IT. Yeah. Yeah. So we take three. This is called trios, and we're also using this in crisis management. So we take three people from cognitively diverse backgrounds. So a young programmer, a much older systems architect, and a user trained to talk to IT people. It's easier to train right. users to talk to IT people <laughs> than train IT people to understand users. <laughs> and what I do is I throw 20 trios at a problem for a week and see what they come up with. Right. So what I'm doing is I'm changing the connectivity with short task force, with people who've never worked together from completely different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And we've done, you know, the stuff we're doing on crisis management at the moment is where you have to, in a, in a crisis such as the one we're in at the moment, the center is responsible for coordination, but it needs to distribute decision-making. Right. But you can't distribute decision-making to individuals in a crisis because you can't trust the individuals. You just can't. Mm-hmm. So again, we use trios for that. So, for example, you might have to have a doctor with 10 years' experience supported by a nurse with 15 years' experience with an administrator who records it, if they all agree, you can make a triage decision. Is is a is a uh, is three just that right number between a, enough diversity of thought, but enough speed yeah. to action, so you don't get stuck on a debate with five people? It is no coincidence that if three princes are sent on a quest, you always know the third one will win. Right? <laughs> right. Um, three three is a balanced number, and human beings think in threes. They do. Um, the relative position doesn't matter. So the cognitive load of less than five people is significant. And you know, mm-hmm. three basic numbers, 5, 15, 150. Yeah. Um, and you get radical behavioral differences in teams under each of those numbers. Yeah. That's interesting. 150 is Dunbar's number, right? Yeah, that's Robin's stuff, and which is linked to the neocortex. 15 is a trust limit. Right. And five is uh, Miller's number, which is linked to the short-term memory capacity. So there are physical bases to these things. So one of the things you do in a crisis is you suddenly break into fives, fifteens, and one fifties. You get rid of the hierarchies for a bit. Yeah, and you can reimpose the hierarchy once the crisis is over. That's interesting. So, um, so I took you down a different path. You got the, the 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 triages, the the trios working in groups of three, and you throw more than just one one yeah. group of three at it. And that's a, that's a variation on the parallel safe to fail experiments. So if I show yes. utility trios at a problem part time for a week, I get much better data than if I send out a single systems analyst. Yeah, right. So you notice what I'm doing. I'm not focusing on training the individual to be a brilliant interviewer. Mm-hmm. And basically, putting people together who are so different, they're going to have to think differently anyway. So what I do is I manage the process and the interaction. I'll give another illustration of this. Yeah. 
Um, when I went to school at the age of 11, we had, A, we were taught the rhetoric, which I think we should teach kids anyway. Mm -hmm. It was originally designed by the Greeks to teach thick sons of Roman generals, so it shouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> um, but also, every week we debated. So I still remember walking up to the front of the class at the age of 11, and I was given a card, and it said, support capital punishment. And I had to speak without preparation for seven minutes on something wow. I completely disagree with. I mean, seven minutes, that's a long time. We did that every week from 11 to 18. Mm -hmm. That made us generalists. We read everything. We didn't know what we'd get hit with. It gave us confidence. Right. But it also gave us the ability to understand an argument. Right. So we weren't taught to be critical. We had an interactive process which made us critical. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. We did another project where we funded, ironically, by Victoria's Secrets on adult obesity. Right. Um, where we got children to act as ethnographers to obese adults, and the children changed their behavior. So what we did is we changed, we didn't preach to them and tell them what they should do. We didn't take the sort of classic approach of if you do mm -hmm. this, all these horrible things will happen. We sent them out to investigate the problem. We changed their connectivity so they saw the world differently, and then they worked it out for themselves. I mean, the connection I'm making back, Dave, is when you were explaining the Canavan uh, model and talking about complexity, you're like, you only, you only understand complexity by interacting with it. There's no point in teaching you about a complex situation. You have to be in it to actually start to navigate through it. It goes back to where you started, actually. If you look at the meaning of Canavan, I'd say Canavan's a framework, not a model, which is a mild correction, right? Models Thank you. Yeah. the world. But the other thing is the, the Maori word Turangi, which I can never pronounce, which means the place I stand. Yes. And Jennifer linked it with that. that. Actually, I've talked with Maori about this. It's not the same thing. Kinevin is a flow concept. The idea is you're in a continuously uh. changing environment yeah, where all of your different paths interthread and entangle. Mm -hmm. And you're stable as long as you keep moving. So it's not right. where you stand. And if I come back to climbing, because I climbed with, from 11 to 18, I was on mountain rescue for a bit, yeah? Right. What really mattered was your ability to keep moving. If you ever stopped, you had a problem because the muscle blocked. Huh. Yeah? So if you think As soon as you that, say that, I remember being locked on a wolf face <laughs> going, I feel stuck now because I've lost. Which matters, all right? Yeah. I mean, I could lead that to hard diff by the time I'd finished, but I still remember the first time with the Edward Slabs when I got to the top and the guy just pushed me off so I knew the rope would work. They wouldn't be like <laughs> Man, you had quite the education between 11 and 18. That, that, was, that was the way Welsh grammar schools worked. And interestingly, we're the last generation of generalists. Mm -hmm. And we need generalists desperately in a crisis. The world is full of specialists. My, my kids did module by module. The minute they got their exam in their module, they forgot the stuff and went on to the next one. Right. We couldn't do that. Dave, one of the ways you describe yourself uh, in in your your introduction and the resume you sent through to me is as a pragmatic cynicism. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a an intriguing phrase. And I'm wondering what you mean by pragmatic cynicism. You have to remember I'm a philosopher by training, so I know yes. about the origin. All right. Um, yes. The point about a cyn the cynics are the people who care in an organization because they're prepared to challenge things. They don't go with the flow. They don't right. suck up to the boss. And one of the things I always say to, to CEOs is listen to the cynics um, because they genuinely care. The guys who are parroting your corporate values back to you are just manipulating you. Yeah? Right. 
So I've always been cynical about organizational jargon. You know, I've done work on this. You know, if you look at the the classic purpose statements or mission statements, they're all bloody identical. Yeah, there's no difference yeah, between them. It's just exactly. attitude. They're e- equally banal, equally useless. Got it. They're lowest common denominator stuff. Um, yeah. And what we talk about is praxis. So what we've done, we apply natural science to social systems. So we only do things which are consistent with natural science and we see what happens and then we modify. And that allows us to scale under certainty. So that's the pragmatism. It's kind of like the interaction of theory with practice. Right. An unwillingness to just accept what people say. And the desire for this wider voice, which is what SenseMaker does, and the, the feminists call it epistemic justice. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I mean, Beth, who works for me, has got a lovely way of explaining this. She said, epistemic injustice is old men are philosophers, old wives tell tales. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. it's a perfect way of doing it, right? Yeah. So one of the things we're trying to do is to actually distribute epistemic justice by allowing people to self-interpret and also to self-engage. Right. One of the things we've developed recently are called transgenerational pairs, by which new joiners and people about to retire, or young people and grandparents, work together to come up with solutions. And the reason we do that is brain plasticity is optimized in those two age groups. Right, right. Yeah, older people synthesize, younger people have bright ideas. That's right. Put the two together, you've got the perfect match. And again, that's using science to inform practice. And just out of kind of curiosity, why do you do that in pairs and not in threes? Uh, generally, because what we then do is if the team comes up with a good idea, we put them into a three with somebody who can make their ideas work. Oh, nice. So it becomes a trio at that point. So we did this with one big government project, young people, older people, self-facilitated in an impoverished area, You know, come up with a bright idea, you get put into a trio with somebody from local government who can make your ideas come real. That's fantastic. And, yeah, 15 or 16 of those is better than some major government initiative which promises the earth and delivers very little, says he being That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've I've been a consultant. <laughs> I've been on the inside and outside of organizations, so I've seen all of those stories play out as a view. So that way of finding a kind of connection, yeah, and uh, authority and uh, a kind of a rigor of thought through a diversity of thought is a, a, a powerful thing. I mean, I mean, we got very few people these days. I mean, people talk about T-shaped discipline. I'm, I'm deep in one area, but shallow in another. That isn't yeah. a generalist, because the thing which you're deep in will influence everything else. Right. You need people who are shallow in everything because <laughs> they can make the connections. Right. Gosh. There's a thousand things to ask you, but our time is almost up. Dave, for people who want to find out more about your work and the Kinevan framework, where would they find you on the web? Uh, fairly easy. If you type my name in, you'll find it. Um, but also there's a website, www.cognitiveed-edge.com. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I would, I'd encourage people to check out Cognitive Edge and consider becoming a member as well. I'm a member and there's a very rich resource and community there. So if you're interested in this at all, you're going to find a collection of like-minded people who are wonderful. Join the horn. Sorry, our collective area is called the horn. So. That's right. Exactly. Um, Dave Snowden, you're awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Real pleasure. Hey, it's Michael here. 
two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review that would be amazing thank you